and welcome to the first in a regular series of podcasts from Cornwall Insight on the major contemporary issues confronting the energy sector. I'm Tom Crisp, editor of Energy Spectrum, and I'm here with Cornwall Insight Chief Executive Gareth Miller, who will be sharing some reflections around subsidy of free renewables. With the number of avenues to government support narrowing and industry bringing forward the first subsidy-free projects, such as Inesco's Clayhill, this is an area of significant interest among developers. Gareth, just to set the context, what is the scale of low-carbon deployment necessary to meet the 2050 targets? It's an interesting question. Um, I think there's two angles to this. There's the scale of new build deployment that's necessary, and then there's the magnitude of the challenge just replacing what we built already. So if you look at the National Grid Future Energy scenarios, you take the two-degree scenario, which more or less is kind of the, the consensus scenario that everyone looks to when they think about the 2050 targets, there's something like 160 gigawatts of generation that needs to be um, on the system by 2050 that's low carbon. We're currently at about 53 today, so that implies about 110 gigawatts of uh, new build uh, coming through the pipeline. And National Grid very helpfully break that down into different technologies, 35 gigawatts coming from offshore wind, about 30 coming from PV solar, 10 gigawatts coming from onshore wind, and then a degree coming from, from other sources, nuclear being, being amongst them. That's only one view of, of, of uh, new build, and that's capacity. The Committee on Climate Change also present a view on what's necessary to meet the carbon budgets, and that's a shorter time horizon, but in their report in July this year, they identified something like a 60 terawatt hour gap in uh, volume of low carbon electricity necessary to keep the power sector on course with the trajectories to meet um, the carbon intensity they see as being um, synchronous with, with the, the carbon budgets in, in the power sector. And that's on top of, that's taking into account existing government policies that are in place. Now I mentioned that you know, new build is one thing, but replacing the stuff that we've got is, is another. We've got about just over 40 gigawatts of um, renewable generation commissioned as we sit here today. There's more to come under the CFD regime. But if you look at the profile of the age of those assets, once we get to about somewhere between 2026 and 2030, um, a lot of those projects start to trip over their 25-year useful economic life. Mm. In other words, they become far older than, um, uh, than investors uh, envisaged them, them being and being still viable when they originally made their investment decision. And they're going to need to be repowered or someone's going to need to build new projects um, on that site. So in essence, I guess what I'm saying is we need to almost redo the whole 160 gigawatts that's necessary by 2050. We can't just say we've done 40 or 50 gigawatts today and it's 110 on top. That's a massive investment challenge for uh, the UK to wrestle with. Hmm. Clearly significant. So the question is, is the wholesale power market capable of delivering the signal to build? No, is the, is the short answer in my view. Um, and it's a, it's a view that's backed up by a recent analysis that we've, that we've done. Like the future is in, inherently uncertain. But one thing um, that is, uh, I think, legitimate to argue is that the more intermittent variable generation you bring onto the system, the greater the prospect of this phenomenon known as price cannibalization, reducing the power price that uh, these renewable generators receive when they're generating. And we've done our, our own analysis on the effect of price cannibalization. And over time, you start to see um, 
delta between you know, your average wholesale power price and your captured price for renewable generators around about 30%. Mm. In other words, the price they're receiving is 30% lower than what the average power price uh, is uh, in, in the market. And that just means even with technology costs trending down, um, there's going to be pressure on returns for those for those for those projects. Now, of course, it, it, there are things that these projects can do to to try and mitigate against that risk. Um, it will act as an incentive, I think, for renewable projects to, to um, integrate sources of flexibility with their projects, like batteries. Um, that's only going to go so far. Uh, to uh, mitigate the, the impact of cannibalization. Now, you need a very, very large battery and grid connection capacity to accommodate it to fully mitigate the risks of cannibalization for, say, an onshore, an onshore wind project. So now this, this concept of cannibalization, when people start to factor that into their investment models, will be a problem. The other issue is, and this has been a, a long-standing um, challenge for anybody looking to build merchant power plants, a lot of the money that comes to invest in these projects comes from the bank community, comes from project finance debt providers. They're very risk averse. I know, I used to be one. I was a project financier for seven years. Um, and one thing they don't like is unpredictability or variability in, in revenue. Hmm. Uh, and if you're financing a project and seeking to get repaid over 15 years, and the predominant source of that repayment is a very volatile, an unpredictable wholesale power um, price, then that, that is not going to sit well with the project finance debt community. What they really want is a degree of stability in, in revenues against which they can lend money. Mm. And without some subsidy support being provided or some stabilisation provided by government, it's hard to see where that, that stabilisation comes from. Indeed. So what innovations are market players developing to meet this challenge? Sort of, are these sort of new innovations like co-location likely to succeed or is the outlook still challenging? Uh, co-location is definitely something that we're going to see people um, taking, taking forward um, for, for the reasons I've alluded to, because mm. it does act as a, a partial mitigation against the impact of things like price, price capitalization. Um, I mean, the, the, the other things, there's some kind of some policy-driven things going on here, and there's some market-driven things. So the policy-driven things that are going on here is allowing renewable um, technologies to enter the capacity market, which is uh, you know, will, will imminently be the case. And, and people have pointed to this being uh, a source of revenue stability, which I've alluded to already being quite important to underpin investments in, in these projects. And that's true. You know, if you're if you're a, a new build renewable project, you can go into the capacity market and get a 15 year agreement. Mm. That will help. The, the The challenge will be number one, the price of the capacity market, um, which has been very low and much lower than what people expected it to be when the capacity market was introduced, and also just how aggressively renewable sources are likely to be derated in the capacity market. Mm. And when you combine the two. Um, very aggressive derating of, of renewable technologies like onshore wind and solar and low prices. You know, the impact on um, renewable projects on kind of pound per megawatt hour basis is, is very, very marginal. Mm. So that that is that whilst it's a helpful innovation, I guess, in policy terms, it's unlikely to be um, uh, a, a re- have a revolutionary effect on the ability to, to, to build subsidy free. 
And in the market itself, well, you know, traditional PPAs, utility PPAs may provide a, de uh, a degree of stimulus here. If you're a, a project looking to build without subsidy and you're able to get floor price from a, from a utility under a PPA, again, that can provide some um, underpinning to allow you to, to raise investment. Mm. Banks find that attractive. But the challenge comes down to price. Yet again, you know, floor prices in the market are very low. Um, not every PPA provider will offer a floor. And if they do, somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds a megawatt hour, with most of the offers weighted towards the 10 pound level, is what you might see. And that really isn't going to be enough to, um, to support a, a viable investment in these projects for most counterparties, for most counterparties. And then there's been an awful lot of talk about corporate PPAs um, being uh, a, a phenomena in the market that's really going to drive subsidy-free renewable investment. And I think we will see projects getting built with corporate PPAs. In fact, we already are. Mm. Uh, so it has been helpful. Uh, but the issue really there is um, the scale of the availability of those PPAs and the ease of transacting those PPAs and the price at which you can get those PPAs. Now, in terms of scale, yes, there are a number of buyers out there that are interested in signing corporate PPAs. But this isn't the kind of stimulus that, say, the renewables obligation was providing to renewable generators. It's unlikely to deliver you know, several gigawatts of renewable power year on year. Uh, it's more likely to be several hundred megawatts because the, um, uh, the, the pool of buyers that want to, to, to buy power under corporate PPAs um, is uh, uh, finite. Hmm. And then the second issue, I alluded to is you know, ease of transacting. So these deals are very, very complicated. Um, and not all projects will be attractive to the corporate buyers in the first place who might want to scale. Um, and even if they are getting to a point where a, a contract can be settled uh, and agreed, um, will take far longer than negotiating a traditional utility PPA. Now that, 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 may, that issue may diminish over time, but that's kind of where we are today. And thirdly, price. So, you know, corporate buyers are not going to want to enter long-term PPAs at fixed prices above where the market are. Why would they? I mean, there is a, there is a, I guess, a value for, for contracting green generators, mm. standing up in front of your shareholders and saying you're contributing towards decarbonisation or sustainability. But there's also a, you know, a, a rational economic um, decision-making. It's a focus on the bottom line. Yeah, there'll be a focus on the bottom line. And I, I just do not see, um, uh, a long list of corporates that are going to prepare to pay out of the market prices for for power. So the debate then really is that whether the prices they are prepared to pay is going to be sufficient to make projects investable or economically viable. So the more efficient projects that are lucky enough to be big enough and attractive to corporate buyers probably can take a lower price that might make these things work. Um, we're going to see you know instances where that happens and that's great, but it's not going to be the scale model I don't think that's going to drive um, kind of a, substi a substitution to the levels of uh, deployment that we've seen under the, the subsidy schemes we've had historically. Hmm. So given we've identified this significant gap between what's required to meet binding climate goals and what the market and current structures can deliver, what role do you think there is for policymakers in bridging that gap? Uh, well, the, the politics um, around uh, this are, are quite complicated. Um, in particular, you know, there is still subsidy and support being provided to certain technologies in the market. So 
for example, the next CFD allocation round will be providing CFDs for less established technologies. And uh, you know, one would expect a large amount of that support to go to offshore wind. So there isn't um, a, uh, a blanket objection to providing subsidies to renewable technologies at a government level. I mean, the argument I guess the government would make is we're focusing on those technologies that need support most, which are the least mature technologies. I, I suppose you could argue, however, that with strike prices at £60 and below for offshore wind, is that really characteristic mm. of, a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a, uh, an immature technology? Um, and I think that's a fair argument to make. So if, if there is a, 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 um, a, a, an absence of a philosophical objection to providing subsidy, then the question emerges, well, okay, shouldn't you be expanding that support to other technologies in the market? And in particular, if your policy objective is to decarbonize at the lowest possible cost, why wouldn't you um, provide support to some of the cheap, the cheapest technologies that are out there, like onshore wind and PV solar? And that's where we really do get into political issues because previously, um, this government has made several statements about um, no new support for, for onshore wind. And also, I think Treasury are very keen that we, we don't add to the levy bill beyond what's already been committed to um, for the upcoming CFD auction. So. There's a whole soup there of political issues that um, make it difficult for the government to provide support to, to um, renewable technologies and certainly onshore renewable technologies. But if we need, but if we're going to deliver this 160 gigawatts and it's not going to come from the wholesale power market, and whilst these innovations in the market will be helpful in uh, bridging some of that gap, but certainly not all of it, something will need to be done. Hmm. If decarbonisation is mandatory and we need it to happen, something will need to be done. And what we're proposing, um, and we've written about this extensively and had dialogue with a number of market participants, is a CFD floor. Uh, the idea behind this is that it provides uh, a new way, a, a new deal, if you like, between um, the consumer and renewable generators. So rather than renewable generators bidding in at a fixed strike price from which they recover all of their costs and it delivers all of their return. Instead, they bid into an auction at a floor price. Um, so in other words, they bid in the minimum level of support they think is required to underpin the investment. And they get access to the upside above the floor price when wholesale prices go above the floor, but only to the extent they've paid back what they received from, in this instance, the LCCC under a CFD when payments are below the floor. And in that sense, it acts like a, almost like a working capital subsidy. There is no long-term sunk subsidy cost for the consumer unless you believe that the uh, wholesale price is going to be um, almost exclusively below the floor price for the length of the CFD. Even with price cannibalization, one would have thought that the floor price is necessary to support onshore wind and solar will be at such a level for that to be unlikely. Uh, and of course, government would be in control of what floor prices could be bid into these auctions because in the same way they do with the CFD, where they cap strike price bids using an administered strike price, just modeling to work out what that should be per technology, they could do exactly, undertake exactly the same exercise for a CFD floor. And bidders would be happy to bid in lower floor prices than fixed strike prices because of course, uh, they get access to upside. So when the wholesale price is above the floor, they can ride some of that, uh, some of that upside, which is uh, attractive. And there's an added benefit, I think, to this structure as well, which is 
um, in order to maximise the upside above the floor, it would provide further incentives for renewable generators to do things like hybridise, to co-locate, to find ways of mitigating against the effect of price cannibalisation, to reduce the amount they may be constrained on the system um, in a way that the current CFD doesn't. There is no incentive once you have a CFD to do anything other than generate and receive the fixed drive price. So there are lots of advantages, I think, to taking another look at the way we design CFDs and, and, and deliver them hmm. in a different way that's lowest cost to consumer, that might provide the impetus to allow government to bring back into the fold onshore technologies. It's fundamentally investable and also stimulates some of the activity you might want from renewable generators to think about the wider system impacts that uh, a generation has. Fantastic. Do you think there's a particular sort of um, opportunity in the next couple of months that would offer the obvious avenue to consider this? For example, the EMR five-year review coming up? Uh, yes. Um, EMR five-year review is, is, is one. Um, the, the second one, obviously, is the, the government's response to the Helm review. Mm. Um, and I understand that Greg Clark will be giving a speech in the middle of this month uh, in which he is, is due to make some comments on the government's response to uh, the Helm review. Um, and of course, there are then various different uh, choreographed follow-ups, clean growth strategy updates, response to the Climate Change Committee each year. But the, the obvious one, I think, is is the response to the, to, to the Helm review. Um, and uh, having said that, I think we've been waiting for quite some time to see developments in this area. Um, repeated budgets, Clean growth strategy was another obvious place where they could have said something and, and, and nothing's been said. So mm. uh, I wouldn't hold my breath, um, but let's hope that uh, we see some movement uh, in the middle of this month when Greg Clark gives his speech. And will Dallas be covering that closely? So uh, that's everything we have on this topic. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you do have any feedback, uh, do please get in touch. And we'll shortly be publicizing a further schedule of times and topics for future podcasts. Thank you. Uh-huh.